Lord Jesus, Lord, you're so welcome here. God, we thank you for your word. We take it so seriously, Jesus. But I pray for myself and everyone else in this room, God, would you open our eyes, our hearts, and our ears, God, because we don't just want to hear or see your word. We want to encounter you in the word, God. We want to be transformed because we know that when we see you, we can never be the same again, Jesus. Amen. So if you were to reduce baptism down to kind of its three aspects, I think we're going to be talking about those. So, And they all begin with B, which is easy to remember. Baptism begins with B, and these three aspects are going to begin with B. So we have bath, burial, birth. Okay, so we're going to be looking at those. Bath, burial, birth. But first of all, almost if you were to zoom the camera right back, and the question behind the question of baptism deals with this biblical concept of sin. And you know, in the 21st century, we kind of, we struggle a little bit with the idea of sin. We prefer to talk about kind of learned behavior, cognitive reprogramming, therapy, positive thinking, counseling. You know, we like those concepts. And those are all incredibly important, which is why we employ people like Liz Slynn to do family outreach and and jazz and other people that, that work in those. But the truth is, is that the Bible maintains something that makes us uncomfortable because it says when you strip it away and you remove all the layers, deep down there is something wrong with us that can't be counseled, programmed, trained, medicated, or wished away. There is something deeper, and it's this problem of sin. And what should make us feel even more uncomfortable than that is that when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about slavery. It's a control issue. And for us, it's a lack of control issue. Someone put it brilliantly when they said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Hannah and I recently went to the Maldives on our honeymoon, and I had an incredible revelation of sin. Stick with me for a sec, okay? I know that sounds weird. So basically, we, we got married, and then through just a few little miraculous interventions from a wonderfully kind God, we got to go to the Maldives. It was amazing, and generosity from our friends. And Hannah grew up, she's from Ireland, and everywhere in Ireland is close to the ocean, so she loves the ocean. I'm a little bit scared of the ocean. And so we go to the Maldives, and I'm kind of there for the sun and the food. Hannah's there for the sea. And I'm still at that point where I'm trying to impress her by being the kind of the fearless man, you know. So I don't really let her know that I'm a little bit scared of the ocean. And so you get there. First day you're there, they give you snorkel, mask, flippers. And Hannah is, like, so stoked to get in the water. And I'm like, yeah, no. Okay, so we walk along this jetty, and the way that it is, basically, is around the island, you have all this really sharp coral, and then you walk over that on this jetty, and you get in the water, and the first day we arrive, they're talking to us about the dangers of the water, and they say, okay, there are sharks, don't worry about the sharks. I'm like, what do you mean, don't worry about the sharks? They're like, but the thing you do need to be worried about is around this time of year, there's lots of Portuguese men of war in the water. So just be a little bit worried about them, but you'll be fine. I'm like, that does not sound fine. Okay, so 
we stick on all our gear, and I'm like, yeah, Hannah, I'm so excited for this. And we walk along this jetty, and the way that it works is the jetty goes out, and then it's maybe, so if you imagine the water is here, this jetty is maybe like this high, and there's this ladder that goes down into the water. And so I buck up my courage, and I don't know if it's like a weird thing. I don't know if any men are kind of with me in this. I know I couldn't, but I feel like I could fight a lion, you know? Probably no, because it's like my natural habitat. Like, I could give it a good go. Like, I'd probably lose, but feel confident in that. Whereas, like, fighting a shark just feels terrifying because I'm just so out of my natural habitat. Does that make sense to anyone else? Yeah? So, we are in the water, and I come, and so we're, like, swimming around, and it's all, like, it's all good, all these creatures... And then I see this shark, yeah? And this shark, in reality, is probably like, it's like a reef shark. So don't but underwater, it looks like a great white shark. You know, you lose all your perspective. And so it's like there, and it like swims into the deep blue and then comes back. And I'm like, okay, that's a good solid three minutes, and I'm done, I'm confident, I'm fearless, I'm getting out. So I come out of the water, Hannah's Hannah, like, happily swimming around, and I turn around, and someone has taken away the ladder. And there is no one around. So it's me and Hannah in the water. She's happily swimming around. And I'm like, I have literally got no way to get out of this. And I'm thinking about the coral, and it's like, you know, this sort of depth above this, like, razor-sharp coral. And I've seen Castaway, and no thank you. And so, and I'm, like, just there. And I, like, and I come to this revelation while I'm bobbing in the water. I literally can't get out. There is no way for me to get out of the water. And there is no one for me to call. And you see, that's the thing with sin. is that when you're stood on the jetty and all the bright colours and everything looks amazing and it all looks quite attractive, and you think, I can just dip a toe in. This won't bind me. This won't control me. I'll be fine. And then suddenly you find that you're in the water and as soon as you want to try and get out, there is no way to get out. And everything that felt so exciting suddenly is really scary. And that's the deal with sin. And that's why what a saviour is, it's that ladder. It is the only means by which you get out of the water. It turns out, you know, they're just so used to it, they just carried away the ladder for maintenance. They brought it back like 20 minutes later. I complained, they did nothing. But And so, other than that, the honeymoon was amazing. But, you know. And so... Baptism finds its place in this revelation of the fact that sin is a real, real problem and sin is slavery and we can't get ourselves out. We really need a saviour. And you know, we even see that, I don't know if you ever thought about it, in the way that we practice baptism. You know, other than turning up on the day that you get baptised, you don't have to do anything. Someone lowers you into the water and someone lifts you back up out of the water. And even in that, baptism exemplifies the message of grace to us. Because you see, it isn't something you can do for yourself. It's something that someone does for you. And for that reason, baptism is far more about deliverance than it ever was about obedience. Because that's the Christian faith. It's far more about what the Lord has done and will continue to do for you. And we just get to partner with that. And so here we are. So this is the context. This is setting the scene for why is baptism such a non-negotiable part of the Christian faith? Well, it's sin and it's a saviour. And so let's jump into our first B. And that is 
fast. Okay, so the first time that we see this practice, this practice of baptism in the New Testament is with John the Baptist. So it makes sense. That's why he was named after it, because he was the one who baptized people. And he taught to the baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so his message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think the most important thing to say here is that sometimes we get our idea of repentance a little bit confused. Repentance is not fundamentally about saying sorry, and it's not about this idea of penance. If you look up the Greek word repentance, what it literally means is to change one's mind. So what he is saying is the kingdom of God is coming. So you need to change your mind. Everything's different now. So what repentance is not is penance. What it is is it's saying, I'm not going to look over here anymore. I'm going to look this way to something and someone different. And so that's what the forgiveness of sins is all about. It is the, the kind of the bath aspect of baptism is a request to God to clear your conscience and a pledge to God to keep it clean. So it's a request to God to clear your conscience and a pledge to God to keep it clean. To change your mind, to stop looking at some things and look towards Jesus. And even if this was kind of the full package of baptism, it would be amazing. But the truth is, baptism gets much, much more wonderful when we, f- we jump into the second B, which is burial. Okay? If we were to reduce baptism down to one sentence, what it would be would be death to life. And in that way, it shows the gospel again. Death to life. Um, an amazing Christian speaker called, and like teacher called David Pawson says, this is a quote from him, the New Testament concept of discipleship does not begin with either Jesus' life or his teaching, important as these are. The point of entry into the kingdom of heaven on earth is to be found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and of ourselves. I'm just going to read that again. The New Testament concept of discipleship does not start with Jesus' teaching or his life, as important as these are. The point of entry into the kingdom of heaven on earth is to be found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and of ourselves. And baptism is your death. It is your funeral. It is the beginning of this Christian discipleship. Back in the early church days, the whole practice of baptism, of going into the water and coming out of it, it would have reminded the Israelites of some really important parts of their history, which they held really, really kind of close to their heart. So we're just going to look at one. And probably the most important of those is um, the Exodus. And so if you would please turn with me to Exodus 14. Okay, Exodus 14, we're going to be reading from verse 21 through to 30. Um, At this point in the story, what's happened is the Israelites have been held captive. They've been slaves to Egypt for about 400 years, and God has heard their cries. And he has sent Moses in, and the plagues have happened. Pharaoh, after the last plague, has released the Israelites, and they've gone down to the Red Sea, and they need to cross that. At the same time, Pharaoh has changed his mind, and he's chasing them. And then we jump into the story at this point. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. So how does this relate to baptism? And why would they have thought about this when going through baptism? Well, if we unpack that story, what is happening is that for 400 years, the Israelites had been slaves. Something had controlled them from the minute they woke up to the minute they went to sleep. But then because of a sovereign act of the grace of God, they passed through waters and all the powers that held them captives before couldn't follow them through. Do you hear the echoes that you're beginning, that God's wanting to show you about baptism? Everything that held you captive before cannot follow you through the waters of baptism. It's a burial. It can't follow you through. Everything that controls you everything that held you bound. None of it can follow you through the waters of baptism. That is what the Bible is trying to teach you. And that's why baptism is so important. There's, um, there's this real kind of beautiful part where Paul talks about baptism. He's talking about the Exodus. And he says that the Israelites were literally baptized into Moses. And what he means by that is that they got liberty from Pharaoh and they started their loyalty to Moses, right? So they were baptized into the leadership of Moses. And then later he explains that your water baptism, he describes as being baptized into Christ. So what does that mean? It means just as the Israelites were liberated from Pharaoh, you have been liberated from the power of the enemy. And just as they were loyal to Moses, now you get to be loyal to Christ. It's the burial it's the beauty of baptism. It couldn't follow you through the water. It broke all the bonds that held you bound, and it has forged new bonds to Christ. It's interesting, though, if you, if you go back a little bit in that story, you find that the Israelites, they leave Egypt on these horrific conditions, and they get to the water, and faced with the unknown and only the promise of God in front of them and the army behind them, most of them turn to Moses and say, why did you bring us here to die? Why can't we go back? At least we know. At least we weren't dead back there. At least we know what we were living in. 
Isn't it challenging how quickly we forget the whips on our back when we're faced with the fear of the unknown? So what does that mean for us today? Well, I wonder how many promises you feel like God has spoken over you. And you find that you want to step out of bondage, but you find yourself at the Red Sea, at that place where you literally have to step into the unknown. And we find it so easy to return to what we know, even if we don't like it. So I wonder if, like for generosity, you know, you hate that feeling of feeling enslaved to money. You hate feeling that way. And you know the promise of God is that he will give, there's joy to be found in generosity. There's freedom to be found in knowing that he will provide for you. But when faced with genuinely that thing of standing in front of the Red Sea and stepping into this lifestyle of generosity, we find it so easy to return, even though we know it's a place of bondage. Or maybe, you know, it's the sexual purity thing. We hate being bound by lustful thoughts and hurtful behaviors. And we know God's promise of the fulfillment, wholeness, and satisfaction found in sexual purity. But when faced with the Red Sea, how easy do we find it to return to that place? And that's why we have to go back to our baptism, which says, the old way has no power over you. It couldn't follow you through the water. You died to that old self. Those bonds were broken, and now you have been baptized into Christ. Um, there's a story I heard of a, an, like a hell's angel who got saved, and he had this like big fat tattoo of the devil just across his arm. And literally, as he was baptized, he went down into the water, and when he came up, this tattoo had disappeared. Amazing. Baptism is primarily about what happens internally. But what God did there in his grace was he externally manifested the spiritual reality that he was stepping into. That bondage to the enemy was gone. It's washed away. We couldn't follow him through. So we have bath, we have burial, and then we move on to our third B. And the good news is that you don't just stay dead. You don't just go down into the water. You also come out. And this is birth. Water is a sign of... Um, can be a sign of death, but it can also be a sign of life. You know, if you think about it, whenever a woman goes into labor, they talk about the water breaking, and then literally the baby passes through the water, right? So the water comes, and is the, the passing through of water is a sign of life, and they would have known this. That's why they talked about it back in the biblical days. And um, there's this funny interaction that Jesus has in John 3 with a man called Nicodemus, and he, the Bible kind of makes it clear that he was one of the smartest people around, which, based on one of his questions we're going to look into, is quite surprising. Because he goes to God and he's like, God, what must I, well, Jesus, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is like, you have to be born again. And so Nicodemus, one of the smartest people around, says, all right, so do I actually literally have to climb back into the womb? And Jesus is like, no, that's disgusting. But what he does say is you have to be born of the spirit and of water. And so we've talked about the whole water section, but then you find that there's a second baptism in the Bible, this baptism into the spirit. If you follow the language of baptism, you find that it changes a little bit between when you first see it with John the Baptist and then when you later see it on the day of Pentecost with Peter. So John the Baptist, as we talked about, kind of he preaches this, be baptized for the forgiveness and the repentance of sins. 
Later, Peter says the same thing. He says, repent and be baptized. But then he adds this next bit, and he says, and be baptized with the Spirit. Because the two are intrinsically linked. If the water baptism was there to get you clean, the baptism of the Spirit is there to empower you to stay clean. And so you are baptized into the Spirit. So I guess the inevitable question is if the baptism of the Spirit is there to keep you clean, then you know, how come we still slip up? How come we still make mistakes? You know, a lot of people in this room would have been baptized, and I don't think anyone would say that since that day they've been perfectly, you know, haven't sinned once. So, so what happens? Well, we live in a dirty world, and we walk through it, and sometimes that rubs off on us. And so what the Bible teaches us and what Paul says in Romans 6.11 is he says, you must count yourself dead to sin. That Greek word count is a word logismai. It's literally an accountancy term, which means calculate. Look at the evidence, count, compute, come to this conclusion. You are dead to sin. And so our kind of role is to keep applying our baptism of the Spirit. Keep living in it day by day. Even in the word, I feel like we get insights into the relationship we should have with the Spirit. The word baptism or baptismo means to be immersed, like fully sunk, dipped into something. So you could legitimately say the Titanic was baptized into the sea, right? That's what it's like. It's like so deep and immersed into it. And that's the relationship we have to have with the Spirit. found out something interesting that I really liked. And uh, there's some kind of, if you look up the root, root word for baptism, there's a few instances where it gets related to like pickling a cucumber, right? And so the, the cucumber is literally baptized, pickled in vinegar, right? And so what we're called to do is literally be pickled in the Holy Spirit, just little pickles in the Holy Spirit. And so if you want like one thing to stick with you, it's this image. This is what the empowered life looks like. It's the constant daily choice to be immersed, pickled in the Holy Spirit. And so the water baptism there was to get you clean. The baptism of the Spirit is to empower you to live true to Christ. And then there's one final aspect which I just want to talk about, and then I'm going to pass back to Bill. Just like with any natural birth, this spiritual birth also comes with a family. You know, you are literally born into a family just like you are or meant to be in the natural world. So last week we talked about the church. The reason that the church is meant to be such a strong, tight-knit community is because you are literally born into one family. Me, you, everyone who loves Jesus with, with one spiritual family, literally born into it. And so that's why when we decide to do baptisms at Emmaus, we choose to do them on our big party in the summer. Because what is there to celebrate more than someone joining the family? You know, that was what mine and Hannah's wedding was about. Joining each other's families, forming a new family. And so the baptism, the reason we celebrate it is because you are literally joining the family. And so it's, it's interesting because Jesus even talks about this becomes your primary identity. This is the top trump one. So even when we're talking about politics and you know, Bill's word was so good about making sure that we maintain. The reason that we maintain it is because we're literally all born into one family. Beyond race or politics or anything else. It's this spiritual birth, this new creation that we're all born into. And so, 
to conclude, baptism is about death to life. It's a bath, it's a burial, and it's a birth. The bath is the forgiveness and the repentance, the changing your mind and turning away from sin. This plea to God and this pledge to stay clean. It's burial, it's this death to the old sinful life. And it's the freedom from everything that enslaved you. Everything that controlled you before. And it's birth. It's this new creation reality. It's this life of being pickled in the Holy Spirit that lets us live empowered to stay true to Christ. And so that's why here at Emmaus we believe that it's a non-negotiable part. We believe that's what Jesus said. To be a Christian is to be baptised because it's such a fundamental part of the beginning of our discipleship journey. So I'm just going to pray. Um, I just want to point your attention before I close. Pete wrote this incredible document which basically outlines why we believe what we believe at Emmaus. And it goes into some of the details that I haven't had time for, especially some of the more kind of technical points of baptism. And so there is a whole load of printouts that we've made available. If you're interested or if you have any questions, Obviously, come up and talk to us, but please do grab one of those as well on your way out. Ah, Lord Jesus. God, we thank you that even in the way that you chose for us to be baptized, you preach this message of grace to us. That, Lord, this Christian faith is first and foremost about deliverance. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for this invitation to be so saturated and baptized in your spirit. God, I pray for myself and everyone here. Would you help us to live in that spiritual reality? Because our desire is to look more and more like you every single day. We love you, Jesus. Amen.